And so, let's turn to the place from whence God speaks uh, the Bible. So would you reopen your Bible to Acts chapter 11 tonight? Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. And thanks to James, not only for uh, leading the service, but also for reading this scripture portion, which is our study tonight. Now, I wonder if you've ever considered the subject of naming local churches. Church naming. It's actually interesting when you look at it. There are many different approaches to coming up with a name for a local church. And did you know, for example, that Charlotte Chapel is actually an inherited name? In 1818, our forefathers bought this site from the Scottish Episcopalians and they chose to keep the name Charlotte Chapel. Although they and we, ever since, have inserted the word Baptist every now and again into the sandwich. Or how about naming your church after a person you admire or appreciate? St. Paul's and St. George's, just up the road. Or uh, St. Giles Cathedral on the Royal Mile. And then there's naming your church by location, which is always popular. Uh, Morningside Baptist Church, Musselburgh Baptist Church, Davidson Mains Parish Church. It's named by location. Or then again, and I do suspect this is maybe most popular today. How about naming your church based on the preferences of the congregation? In the church where I hail from, in Kirk and Tillich, we actually voted on our church name. And what we discovered was that the term Riverside was popular, as was the word gospel, as was the word church. And so we amalgamated these together, and voila, Riverside Gospel Church. Many methods, you see, to choosing a church name And there must be more, but I want to bring to your attention perhaps a method you haven't come across. And if you're ever church planting, just bear this one in mind if you're picking your name. How about asking unbelievers? How about inviting the unchurched who live in the area of your church to name your church? Crazy idea, someone is thinking. Well, maybe, but this is actually what happened one time in Acts. In Acts 11, I wonder if you noticed, some unchurched people called the church in Antioch Christians. Verse 26 is in the passive. The disciples were called Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians. Presumably, it was the non-Christians who called the Christians Christians. And this was, as James has already said, the first time in all of human history that any follower of Jesus had been called Christian. They were, you might even say, Antioch First Christian Church. And it's our great privilege this evening to look at this church And to learn from this church, which was the first Christian church, at least uh, by name, at least by name. 
Now, here's the question I want us to ask and to answer this evening. What led the pagans to call the Christians Christians? What was it about this group of people that invited the name Christian? And what does it mean today? Uh, What does it mean to worthily bear the name Christian? In a time when, admittedly, the word Christian has become pretty vague and diluted. Well, here's the first mark of a truly Christian church. I hope you're listening. A Christian church, firstly, starts right. A Christian church begins well. It is properly founded. It has a genuine God-inspired inception. You see, one of the reasons why some so-called Christian churches aren't worthy of the name is because they never began right. They didn't begin where a Christian church needs to begin, with the gospel being shared, and with God working in power, and with the response of sinners turning in repentance and trusting in Jesus. And so they may be social clubs, they may be gatherings of religious people, but they are not true Christian churches. Well, not so Antioch. Antioch was perhaps the finest church in the New Testament. And Antioch didn't make a false start. At Antioch, a Christian church was truly birthed. And may I say, even at Antioch, even at Antioch. The Antioch was not the kind of place you expected a church plant to be successful. Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the whole of the Roman Empire. It was dwarfed only by Rome and Alexandria. 300,000 people by population. And Antioch was a commercial hub. It was 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was 15 miles from a large seaport. And through its commercial trade, it had this uh, huge Mediterranean business going on. And therefore, Antioch became hugely wealthy and materialistic. In fact, historians tell us that the main street in Antioch, it was four miles long. You just imagine four times the length of Princess Street, maybe just a little less. And it was completely paved with marble the whole way. And it had marble colonnades up either side of the main street. Now, that's wealth by anyone's standards. It was also, here's an interesting tidbit you get in study, it was also the only ancient city with street lighting in the world. It was a wealthy city. People called it Antioch the Beautiful. They called it Antioch the Great. And yet, like many big, impressive cities, beneath the impressive veneer, there was a a sordid underbelly to Antioch. It was a city where sinful pleasures were on tap, So much so, Antioch was considered even worse in its morality than Rome, if you can imagine that. And it was only second worse to Corinth, which really was the lowest of the low. So it was hedonistic, as well as materialistic. Are you signing up for the church plant yet? And it was also pluralistic as well. See, Antioch, because of its geography, its location, it was a melting pot of different cultures. East and West met in Antioch. 
And everyone seemed to live in Antioch. There were Greeks and Syrians. There were Phoenicians and Jews. There were Arabs and Persians and Egyptians and Indians. All in Antioch. The result was the worship of many gods. And also the first city perhaps in the whole world where tolerance became a virtue. Where everyone's different and everyone's right and everyone should be left alone. That was Antioch in the first century. What a challenging place for a church to spring up. And it was urban as well, of course. It was a city which is notoriously difficult to reach. But you know, one of the things Acts shows us is that God has a heart. God has a heart to herald the good news about Jesus in cities. God cares and God works to captivate cities for Christ. Not just countrysides and hillsides where the sheep are, but in the cities where the people are. And so providentially, on the back of a persecution, and this references back to Acts chapter 8, Verse 19 of the chapter now tells us that some of those who were evicted from Jerusalem traveled north. And uh, some of them went to Phoenicia, some went to Cyprus, but others went to Antioch. Now, some of them, we learn, only spoke to Jews. And this isn't surprising. What we've seen in Acts is that some of the Christians believed that the good news was only for Jews, only for people from a Jewish background. We're learning that this was not God's idea and we're seeing that this is being unraveled throughout the book of Acts. And yet some of them, verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and they began to speak and here it is, to Greeks also. Telling them the good news of the Lord. Oops. Apparently, no one had read in the script uh, that you don't evangelize Greeks. Apparently, they didn't know that this was frowned upon. They uh, didn't understand that the gospel was only for Jews, not Greeks. But look what happens. Uh, Surprise, surprise, Greeks get saved. And then look, the author of Acts brings a big shock in the text. Did you notice it? He explains that God is the initiator of all of this. Because he says in verse 21 that the Lord's hand was with them. The hand of the Lord symbolizes the power of the Lord, always in Scripture. And so Luke is saying that the conversion of Greeks was down to God's power. The Lord was at work in this. Now, from a human perspective, yes, there was another side to this, uh, that a great number of people uh, believed and turned to the Lord, verse 21. In response to God's powerful initiative, a great number believed, that is, they trusted in who Jesus is as the sinless Son of God, and they trusted in what Jesus did in dying on a cross for their sins in their place, and in rising again, resurrected, to new life, to give them life. They believed in that. They trusted in it. But watch this, and this is fascinating in Antioch. They didn't just believe. They also turned to the Lord in what the Bible would call, it's not here, but in the Bible, it's repentance. And that must have been a big sacrifice for people in heathen Antioch. It must have been. 
to, to give up their vices, to give up their idols and their gods and their sinful pleasures. But you know, Christ requires not only our trust in him as Savior, he also requires our turning to him from our sin. Some people try and divide those two things, but you can't have one without the other. You can't have faith without repentance. And I know of several people who aren't Christians, and I'm sure you do also. And the reason that they're not Christians is not because they can't trust in Jesus. That's okay. But they don't want to turn from their sin. There's particular pleasures they would miss out on too much. Maybe that's a challenge for somebody here uh, even this evening. Maybe you need to let go of certain things and recognize as we've been singing and thinking about that Jesus is an infinitely greater treasure and soul satisfaction than your sin. Maybe God is powerfully working tonight in your heart. And he's actually drawing you to himself even this evening. You know, maybe you're here and you're a Christian and the challenge for you this evening is a little bit different. And it is that you need to be one of these people, one of these unnamed folks that goes into Antioch and simply shares the good news, simply tells people about this Jesus so that people can trust in him and turn from their sin. One of the things that so impresses me about this passage is how God uses ordinary people to break the hardest ground, urban ground, with the gospel. Isn't that amazing? You say, I'm not a big name evangelist. Listen, you don't need to be a big name. You don't even need to be named. Did you notice, it's really interesting in verse 20, that these witnesses in Antioch, they are unnamed. Usually in Acts, when uh, someone's evangelizing, we get the names, but here they're just unnamed. Uh, Some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they began to speak. We know where they're from. Uh, We know that they were men, but we don't know anything else about these chaps. There's obviously nothing much to say. They were unknown in the wider church, in the wider scheme of things. Just ordinary folks sharing the gospel. And by the way, that's the strategy. That's the strategy. The word in verse 20, by the way, translated telling, is not the word for preaching. It wasn't that they preached. This was a word used of normal conversation, just everyday conversation as you will be doing after the service. These unnamed folks simply conversed the gospel. They simply gossiped it with those that they came into contact with. And guess what happened? A huge church sprung up in materialistic, hedonistic, pluralistic Antioch. Absolutely amazing. I mean, if we were coming up with the evangelistic strategy for the city of Antioch, what would we have done? Oh, Antioch, you know, large, multicultural, it's affluent, it's godless. You're going to need experts. You're going to need big training. And we would have sent in the big names, the big guns, the apostles, the missionaries. God sends in the unnamed disciples simply sharing the gospel. And it's God's plan. Some years ago, the Australian evangelist John Chapman, he's an Anglican and he was working for uh, a department in Sydney, the Department of Evangelism. And they were trying to figure out, how do we reach out to Sydney? And they came up with an idea that they would use the modern media of television. 
And so they looked into this. How could they share the good news on the television? But what they found was that the cost of it was going to be astronomical. It was going to use up their whole year's budget in one calendar month. So they went to a specialist in marketing, uh, not a Christian, and they said, we're thinking about doing this, but it's going to blow our budget. It's going to be astronomical. Is it worth doing? And this specialist in marketing, they said this, here's a quote, no one who had the manpower which you have available would ever spend money on TV advertising. If anything, they would use the money to train people to talk to other people about the product. Well, that's the idea. And even the non-Christian could figure it out. You know, we have an amazing evangelistic strategy. It's the ultimate. It's the silver bullet that every church is looking for. You know what it is? It's you. And it's me. And it's us together. It's not one man in one place at one time in the week. That's not going to achieve very much. It's many people in many places at many times and all times of the week simply and naturally sharing our faith with those around us. That's how we're going to start making a difference in the city around us, isn't it? Peter was speaking just last Sunday night about making the most of every opportunity. Are you making the most of every opportunity that comes your way? I was in the office on Friday uh, afternoon at the church offices, and my particular office is right by the front door, so I tend to hear who comes in and out. And there was a tradesman who came in, went into the main office, and then as they were coming out the door, they were chatting to one of our admin staff. And I could hear, because I'm right by the door, uh, and they said to them, is this a Baptist church? What's a Baptist church? And so our staff member explained what a Baptist church was, and then I was really impressed, and you know, they didn't know the pastoral team was listening. Uh, they shared what a Christian was as well. And it was very natural, and the guy just said, thanks very much, and he went on his way. You know, they're not just making the bulletins around there at the offices. They're telling Jesus, and uh, they're not getting any bonuses for that. You know, when you're working, are you also telling people about Jesus? When the opportunities come up, are you taking those opportunities? See, the church in Antioch exploded onto the scene because of an army of unnamed gospel gossipers. Witnessing by the power of God. So, this church started right. That's the first mark. But this isn't the only mark of a Christian church. Notice a second distinctive. A Christian church also strengthens its members. It strengthens its members. It starts right. Yes, that's very important. But it continues well, strengthening its members by encouragement and by teaching. How important this is. Uh, last year, the American megachurch, Willow Creek, uh, caused quite a few ripples, maybe even a little bit of an earthquake, uh, in evangelicalism because they had a, a, a report, some research done, and what came out of this report was that they were actually struggling, not in evangelism, but in discipling young and brand new Christians. Bill Hybels famously said, we've made a mistake. And so they're reconfiguring a lot of what they're doing. Now, I don't want to be too critical of them because, you know, 
they're a church that's good on evangelism. And some of us are good at the strengthening, but we're not good at the evangelism. But one of the great things about Antioch was it was a church that was good at both, that was focused on both, bringing in the lost and then building up the found. And as Luke's account continues, notice how two mature men play a very significant role in this. Mature Christians, of course, always play a vital role in maturing and discipling younger Christians. And there's two. There's Saul and there's Barnabas. We begin with Barnabas. And we'll call him Barnabas the Encourager. Here's how he comes into the story. News rapidly returns to Jerusalem about what's going on in Antioch. Uh, Jerusalem church was 300 miles south of here. And somebody comes with a report very quickly that Greeks, of all people, are coming to faith. And so perhaps not with a little concern. The Jerusalem church decides to send an emissary, an investigator to Antioch. Seems like it's yet another strange happening in an increasingly long line of strange happenings. There were the Samaritans in Acts 8 who came to faith. And they were only sort of half Jews. There there was the God-fearing Gentile Cornelius who came to faith in Acts 10. I mean, what's going to come next? Greeks, pagan Greeks coming to faith? Well, this must be investigated. So, thankfully for them, they choose very well Barnabas to go to Antioch. What a mature follower of Christ is Barnabas. Verse 24 summarizes that he was a good man, full of faith, of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's quite a character reference, isn't it? Back in chapter 4, you remember Barnabas had sold a field. His field, and he brought all the money to the apostles' feet. And he said, use that in your ministry. He had a proven track record of Christ-like character and Christ-like service. And so, they say in Barnabas, interestingly too, he was suitable in terms of his ethnicity. Because Barnabas was from Cyprus originally. So were some of the evangelists who had come to Antioch. And so they say, you would just be perfect. And they send send Barnabas to Antioch, and off he goes to make his critical assessment. And you really can't underestimate how critical his assessment would be for the ongoing work of the gospel in the world. It was absolutely vital. Just think about it. Barnabas could have put a dampener on this whole thing. And it was no foreign good conclusion either. I mean, Barnabas was a Jew himself. He was a Levite, which was one of the strictest kinds of Jews. Would Barnabas be positive about Greeks coming to faith in Antioch? I mean, really? Well, a lot hung on this in his report. But when Barnabas arrives, true to the man, he makes a generous assessment. When he arrived and saw the evidence... Of the grace of God. Verse 23. It's a beautiful phrase isn't it? Here's what Barnabas saw. He saw the divine. Undeserved favor of God. Towards undeserving people. That's what Barnabas saw. And no doubt. Barnabas saw past all sorts of weaknesses. No doubt Barnabas had to see. To see this grace. Past all sorts of problems. 
which would have been there in the messiness of Greeks coming to faith. But Barnabas sees grace. I wonder, when we look at especially younger Christians, maybe less mature Christians, Rodney was speaking a bit about this this morning, I wonder, do we see God's grace at work? Is that the first thing we see? Do we have eyes trained to see grace? Or are we critically disposed, you know, to to see the, the flaws? Or maybe here's a challenge, and this relates to Barnabas going to another place. When we see God at work in a different place, in another situation, in another church, and the church is growing and it's doing wonderfully well. What is our reaction to that? Do we get envious? Do we get jealous deep down? Do we get critical? Oh, well, you know, things, some things are going okay there, but you don't know all of what's happening. Well, we can love God to work as long as it's on our doorstep. Are we those sorts of people who always see grace or Do we have eyes that are trained to see grime? I'm a little bit like this uh, sometimes. You know, if the window is entirely clean, otherwise I'll notice the little speck of dirt. Oh, to have a church full of Barnabases that look out for grace and who rejoice to see it. And then Barnabas, he not only sees the grace, but he also exhorts these new Christians in their faith. Verse 23, he encouraged them. The sense is that he exhorted them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas had this wonderful balance. On the one hand, he could overlook some of the flaws and he could see God's grace. And on the other hand, he knew how to get alongside and just urge the Christians to persevere. And you need both with any Christian, but especially with new Christians. So Barnabas, he was a mighty encourager, and through him the church was strengthened. But notice, Barnabas recognized that he wasn't all that was needed. Barnabas could do the the patting on the back, and he could do the inspirational team talks. But he also knew that these Christians in Antioch, they needed something more. They needed teaching. They needed lots of meaty teaching. And so into the equation comes a second mature man. Saul, and we'll call him Saul the teacher. This is the same Saul who was remarkably converted back in chapter 9. Paul, Paul, as he is later, he then disappears from Acts for about two, three chapters. These are what's often called Saul's silent years. And we don't know much about what Saul did during this period. It may have been the time when he received many of the the beatings. Remember, five times he received lashes at the hands of the synagogue. Very possibly. What we do know is that Paul, or Saul, has further matured in his gifts as a teacher and as a preacher. And what humility Barnabas had. Barnabas knew his limits. Barnabas knew that he had a warm heart, but Saul had a sharp mind, and he had a great teaching gift. And he thought, this is exactly what these new Christians need. And so he, he goes 100 miles down the road to fetch Saul. What a reminder to congregations, incidentally, that one man can never have all the gifts. The New Testament teaches one body with many parts, 
and with complementary gifts. It's a team ministry that the New Testament teaches. Barnabas needs Saul, and Saul needs Barnabas, and the church needs both of them. Well, Barnabas and Saul go to Antioch. One scholar calls them the dynamic duo. And they are committed there to the priority of teaching, and they instruct the Antioch church for a whole calendar year. And by the way, it was probably daily. Barnabas, sometimes Saul, other times probably more Saul than Barnabas. Encouraging the saints and strengthening them by the teaching of God's word. Who said that instruction wasn't important to mature believers? Well, this Antioch church was committed to teaching. And in fact, over the centuries, it continued to be. And we read in the second century of Ignatius and Theophilus. In the third century of Lucian, Theodore and Chrysostom in the third and also in the fourth centuries. It was a church that was always committed to teaching to strengthen the saints. Because they understood that, that a Christian church, it needs not only to start right, it needs to be strengthening its members. And the way you strengthen members is by teaching the Bible. Yes, I know, it's not the only thing we must do. But it is something that we must do. Teach, 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 and learn, learn, learn. We should never be ashamed of the priority of teaching. Because if you want to become a weak Christian, here's how you do it. Neglect hearing God's word or even sit in services but cease learning from God's word. And you will find in a matter of weeks that you will become weak and you will begin to falter in your Christian endeavor. It's guaranteed. Not suggesting you try it. I was encouraged to hear recently, some people were telling me, you know, we don't come out on Sunday nights, we can't make it out, but every week we download the sermons and we listen to them on the way to work. And we do it every week. And I assume they're doing that because they know the importance of feeding on God's word, of learning from God's word, because this is part and parcel of how we are strengthened as Christians. So Antioch not only starts right, it strengthens its members. Now, here's one final and further mark of a Christian church. And I love this one. It's a great one to finish on, that a Christian church also serves with distinction. It serves with distinction. It isn't just born. It doesn't just feed. But it also serves and exercises. Just imagine, would you, a newborn baby that only eats and eats and eats and eats. Okay, you can probably imagine that because that's what they do, isn't it? But just imagine that that kept on happening and that that was the only pattern the breathing and the eating and the breathing and the eating for years and years and years without exercise. What would happen? You know, it would be supersized child, wouldn't it? It would be terribly unhealthy. You know, maybe they wouldn't last the pace. And yet, you know, that's what it can be like for us as Christians. We can be truly born again. And we can be getting the feeding from all sorts of inputs and Sundays and Bible studies and and one-to-ones. 
but actually we're just getting huge and unhealthy because we're not exercising. We're not serving. One thing I love about Antioch First Christian Church was that they didn't just sit for a year and listen to sermons. During this period, they were actively involved in serving the Lord. Verse 27 gives us a little glimpse of this. During this time, while the teaching was going on, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. So first Barnabas has come from Jerusalem to Antioch. And now some prophets come, uh, but not with a word of encouragement, but with some more discouraging information, in fact. A prophet named Agabus, he stands up in the uh, congregation, and he shares with everyone, he prophesies, in fact, that a severe famine is about to happen throughout the whole Roman Empire during the reign of Claudius. Verse 28. As the end of that same verse points out, Agabus got this prophecy right. Uh, Luke is writing from a later time, of course, and as he looks back on what has occurred since the prophecy was made, he says, yes, this did actually take place. If you read uh, secular historians, they in fact refer to this famine, that a famine hit the empire in the 1st, 2nd, 4th, 9th, and 11th years of Claudius's reign. It was really what his reign was pretty much all about, dealing with famine. Now, Agabus predicts this before it happens. And upon hearing this prophesied, the Antioch church is stirred into action. You see, they knew that back in Jerusalem, many there were not so well off as they were in Antioch. Remember, Antioch was a pretty wealthy place. Jerusalem was not. They knew that the famine would hit Jerusalem especially hard. And so they decide, unprovoked, to give charity to Jerusalem. Now, just think about this for a second. It wasn't as if the famine wouldn't hit Antioch. Right? This was going to be a famine for the entire Roman world. And they could have just said, well, we need to start feathering our own nest here. It's saving up because we're going to have some issues. No. They saw the need in Jerusalem. There was a greater need. They decided that hell should be provided for their brothers in Judea. And they took up an offering. We don't just do that here at Charlotte Chapel. They did that back here. And Luke reports that each gave according to their ability. Verse 29. It's also, of course, what Paul uh, later expanded on in 2 Corinthians, where Paul outlined really the normal way that Christians should give, and that is proportionately. If we have a lot, we give a lot in proportion, and if we have a little, we give a little in proportion, but we all give proportionately to what God has given us. There's a little aside, and this isn't a main point in the passage, do we tip God, or do we give God appropriately and proportionately from our means? You know, is God like the waiter who gets the spare change when we remember to leave it at the end of the meal? Or do we set it aside? Are we measured? Are we planned? And are we appropriate in what we give? Antioch gave proportionately. And yet, most strikingly of all, they gave across boundaries. They gave as Gentile believers to Jewish Christians. That's what's really staggering about this. You see, they demonstrate by their giving. You maybe think, this gift, what's it all about? It's a small thing. It wasn't a small thing. 
they demonstrated by this that there really was only one church made up of both Jew and Gentile. They were saying to them, you are our brothers, you are our sisters in Christ. They were saying what was later said in the New Testament, that when one part of the body suffers, every part suffers. I had a great quote from a, an Indian uh, Christian leader, a guy called Sam Camelson. He was speaking at a student missionary conference in Urbana some years ago. And this is what he said, the church is not an organization. Not an organization. It's a supernatural organism. She feels, she throbs with vitality. In other words, when the church in the United States is pinched, the church in India should say, ah, that hurts. You know, I wonder, this is the test of our solidarity. I wonder when the body of Christ in another part of the world suffers, do we say, ah, that hurts? Antioch were really setting the trend in that. And it is a good thing, I know in this church, that we do give so much to overseas mission and that we do give crisis appeals. And I want to just encourage you from God's word this evening that that's a very healthy biblical practice. Keep it up. Antioch had this outward perspective. Notice they even send their best people with the gift. I mean, who would you have sent with the gift to Jerusalem? Would you have sent your two primary leaders, your two key teachers? That's what they did. They sent Saul and they sent Barnabas on a 310-mile journey to Jerusalem. No wonder with that serving spirit, Antioch later became the birthplace of Christian missions and the launching pad for Saul Paul's missionary activity. That was his sending church. It was from Antioch, this generous, outward-looking church, that the gospel spread from the ends to the ends of the earth. In fact, Antioch was so different that the unbelieving contemporaries of Antioch had to come up with a new name for Antioch. They just didn't have a category for this kind of behavior. People from Gentile backgrounds, helping people from Jewish backgrounds, reaching beyond boundaries and race and Divisions that had been there for centuries. What will we call these people? And then as they get a little bit closer and they hear the conversations and they hear the preaching, it seems that this person, Jesus Christ, is at the center of everything. They just keep hearing about this Christ, Christ, Christ. And they begin to say, these folks are Christians. Which means Christ once. Jews would never have come up with the name. They didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. The Christians wouldn't have come up with the name. They had lots of names to call themselves by. Believers, saints, disciples, followers of the way. They didn't need a new name. But the non-Christians had to come up with a new name. Because they were so radically different. They served with distinction. They strengthened their members. And they started Right in a God-honoring way. Worthy of Christ's name. Talking about names. Alexander the Great had a namesake. The story goes there was a man in his army. Another Alexander. Who was a notorious coward. 
And Alexander the Great, who had conquered the world at 23 years old, called in this coward. And he asked him sternly, he said, is your name Alexander and are you named after me? And trembling, the coward said, yes, my name is Alexander and it's true, I was named after you. And Alexander the Great replied, then either be brave or change your name. You call yourself a Christian? You call yourself a Christian tonight? Then have you turned to Jesus and trusted in him? Then are you being strengthened by the teaching of God's word? Then are you serving him with distinction? See, then and only then will we together be worthy of being called Christians. And others will rightly call us, maybe a lot of other stuff, but they will rightly call us at least a Christian church. Let's pray. Our Father, as we 